0: Happy Father's Day to everyone. I always get nervous with this holiday because, uh, especially when I've seen Steph and the kids have been shopping, uh, I don't want to end up getting a gift that I can't afford. (laughs) Has that ever happened? (laughs) One Father's Day, they got me the big green egg for the back patio, and I was in awe. You know, half of me was like in sheer joy, (laughs) you know, that I was going to be smoking meat, low and slow for hours. And then part of me was in sheer terror, wondering... How much did this cost? (laughs) This this year, my uh, middle child has told me that he is going to be taking a commission on all my Father's Day presents of 33%. He said, if it weren't for me, you wouldn't be a dad. So (laughs) touche on that. Uh, This is a day to think about our family. And we uh, don't want to just make a bunch of jokes today and play video games uh, without acknowledging, too, that this is somewhat of a bittersweet day for, for some people who are here. I mean, some of us have lost a dad, some of us uh, have um, you know, lost a, a husband or a child, and this is, this is a tough day. There are others of us who look back and we didn't have a, a stellar father figure growing up, and, and still others reminded today that divorce can have some pretty far-reaching and painful effects. So we don't want to just joke around today, we want you to also know that your church is here with you, standing with you and uh, we just want to pray for you before we move on to this message about the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, it is a privilege to be able to call you Father and to know that you have tender care for us, and I pray that you would extend that care today uh, to those of us who um, may be hurting. Um, Thank you for the wounds in our life that make us uh, have to rely on you and make our stories of healing all the more wonderful. And so, Lord, I pray for our family today here at Gateway uh, that you bless the dads and uh, bless all of us who might have a little bit of a hole today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. So I had a fun fatherly moment this week. My sweet daughter turned 14 years old, and we hosted a birthday party for nine of her loud, pubescent teenage girlfriends in our backyard. We decided we were going to go all out for this. So we decorated the backyard, and you know we had water balloon fights and giant bubble making contests. There were tables of food everywhere. You know we had a, a Oreo bar and a popcorn bar and an ice cream bar and a candy bar. We um, rigged up this huge video screen, movie screen out between two trees in the backyard and got a projector out there and an outdoor sound system. We built these padded lounge chairs for all the girls to sit in while they watch the movie. And uh, it, it, was pretty, it was pretty impressive. And you know, I remember standing on the porch next to my wife, looking out on this Lord of the Flies for ladies that we had created, <laughs> wondering, how much did all this cost? <laughs> and uh, after it was all over, Uh, And the girls were gone, and we had cleaned up. Malia, my daughter, came up to me to thank me, and she said this: She said, Dad, you are so extra. (laughs) I'd never heard that before. That must be some kind of like newfangled thing the kids are saying these days: You're extra. My daughter thinks I'm extra. I'm not just good, you know? I'm a father who goes above and beyond, I'm extra. I was riding high on that. For, for many hours. And in fact, the next morning I went and looked it up on the slang dictionary online. And here's what it said: it said, if someone calls you extra, you're either trying too hard or being over the top. <laughs> Anyone from a teacher who gives too much homework to that loud, drunk birthday girl stumbling around in a plastic tiara can be described as extra. <laughs> so maybe it wasn't a good thing after all. Um, we parents, we, you know, we, we try to be extra with our kids. I want to make them happy. I want to raise them in a healthy way and uh, teach them about God. And hopefully it's all going to work out well. I was having dinner recently with some families from Gateway, five other couples. They were all older than Steph and me. And uh, so, so their kids were out of the house and our kids are still in high school. And so I was going to ask them for some parenting advice. And they, they started talking about their kids going around the table. And it was shocking how many of their adult children are no longer walking with God. And they, they sort of told these stories one by one about how you know, their kids went off to college and you know, lost their faith, or they ended up with marrying someone who you know, just wasn't into that. Uh, one couple just was left in tears talking about how they hadn't talked to their son in, in three years. So I wanted to ask them the, the question of what happened, but it wasn't really appropriate to do, do it uh, in that conversation. But I wanted to know, you, know, you all are the, the, the five couples of you, you're godly people and you raised your kids in the church, you're successful and you probably gave them every advantage so why are so many of them separated from God? And I know that's a very complicated question and parents are not ultimately responsible for the decisions especially the spiritual decisions their kids make. But there is some interesting research around this, about kids and their Christianity. One study found that 59% of kids who considered themselves to be quote, born again when they entered as a college freshman no longer viewed themselves that way their their senior year of college. The Barna Group recently did a study on the spiritual involvement of 20-somethings. And that study found that 20% of students who were highly churched as teens, you know, they're going to youth group, Uh, on Sunday mornings and very active. Only 20% of them were spiritually active at the age of 29. What happened? According to researcher and writer Sean McDowell, who's the son of the famous Christian apologist Josh McDowell, there are a lot of external factors that go into kids sort of moving away from their faith. Uh, You can imagine what they are. Uh, um, Some of them are personal issues. There's the intensity of the culture, which is... Um, moving people a different direction. There's social pressure, peer pressure. There's the secular humanist orthodoxy that's taught on college campuses. But McDowell notes that one of the biggest factors in kids losing their faith is that they look back on their parents' faith and see that it wasn't that real. They can see a, a, a bit of a hypocrisy. Faith was modeled to them as belief, you know, believing the right things or being a good person. But kids who didn't see their parents trusting in prayer, serving others sacrificially, really leaning into scripture to make decisions, leaning into scripture when you needed help, if kids didn't see those things in their parents, they were more apt to not believe it in adulthood. Doesn't mean that their parents had to be perfect. But a big part of who you become spiritually is whether or not you believed your parents thought it was real. Dads, they watch you every day. They hear the words that come out of your mouth. Uh, They hear your prayers. They see how you respond when things get tough. Do they see that Jesus is all that you really want? One of the central questions of the Bible is, yes, what do you believe about Jesus? Another central question is how are you going to respond in light of what you believe? While Jesus was on this earth he had this tendency to get people really pumped up and then sometimes they ended up being disappointed. Like he over-promised and he under-delivered. And for a lot of people that In the first century, the Jews, um, he would work miracles and cast out demons and preach a really awesome message, but they got frustrated with him because he wasn't political. He wasn't about power, uh, usurping uh, the current the current uh, you know Roman government at that time. And so, in Mark chapter one, Jesus shows up on the scene and he and he tells people what his message is going to be. The central theme of his preaching. You can see that up on the screen. It says, after John, that's John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, after John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. This is the message. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. In the Gospel of Matthew alone, he uses this phrase, kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven, 53 times. And he's talking about this new spiritual reality that he's hoping to usher in. Now, to those of us in the 21st century, this idea of a kingdom sounds odd. You know, we think of castles and moats and knights and kings and queens. But back then, when they heard about this phrase, kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God, they thought about a political reality of power in which the Jews would throw off their oppressors. You know, for close to a thousand years in the Old Testament, the Jews had been dominated by one. Society after another. There were the Babylonians, then the Medo Persians, and then the Syrians, and then finally the Romans. And all throughout the pages of the Old Testament, there are these blossoms of hope that are springing up through the cracks of despair. And you hear the prophets saying, One day it's going to be all right. One day the kingdom of heaven is going to be among us, and we're not going to have to suffer, and there will be prosperity and peace and dignity for all people. God would rule. And things would happen the way they were supposed to be happening. Just look at some of the Old Testament imagery. I'm gonna pull out a couple of verses you've probably heard before. Isaiah 2 He will judge between the nations and settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. In other words, one day when the kingdom comes, there's not gonna be any racial racial hatred anymore, no more wars. People are gonna look at their swords that they had, their spears, and they're gonna say, I don't need this to fight. I'm going to make something useful out of it. Then a few pages later in Isaiah, it says in chapter 11, the wolf will live with the lamb, the infant will play near the hole of the cobra, and the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. Now that sounds really strange. We've, We've heard about the lion and the lamb laying down together, the wolf and the lamb. These are metaphors. These are pictures of when the kingdom comes, Things that didn't used to get along are going to get along. There aren't going to be political parties. And, you know, Israelis and Palestinians are going to sit down for a cup of tea when the kingdom comes. And when the kingdom comes, Catholics and Protestants in Northern Ireland are going to raise a glass of Guinness together. And when the kingdom comes to Austin, you know, the Longhorns are going to actually make a good bowl game someday. (laughs) And there'll be a parking spot at Chewy's. And the lion will lay down with the lamb and the dog won't chase the squirrel anymore. And cats will be banished to their own superiority island. <laughs> and this is the picture. And for centuries, the Jews pined for this. They wanted the arrival of God's promised kingdom. They thought it would be tangible and physical and revolutionary. And there'd be no more sorrow and no more pollution and no more suffering and no more poverty. Then one day, this miracle worker and a rabbi named Jesus appears on the scene. He says, guess what, everyone? I've got fantastic news for you. The kingdom of God has finally arrived. It's here, and it's coming directly to you. And so people heard this message, and they saw the miracles, and they thought, wow, this is it, finally. But then they got disappointed because Jesus wasn't leading a rebellion. In fact, in one passage, they try to take him by force in a crowd and make him into a king, and Jesus pushes through the crowd because that's not the kingdom he was talking about. And so people started getting disillusioned. First of all, it was the religious leaders saying, hey, this guy is stirring up people's passions. And then some of his friends started to leave. Many biblical scholars say that the whole reason Judas betrayed him was because Judas was frustrated that Jesus had no political ambitions. And then finally in the book of Acts, at the ascension, you know, Jesus' last words To his disciples before he ascends into heaven. You know, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, they've seen everything. They're still confused about the kingdom because in chapter one, verse six of Acts, it says, They asked him before he left, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus left them there. He left a lot of disappointed people behind. There was still war, there was still hunger still sickness and disease and violence and hatred and they thought wasn't he supposed to be ushering in a new kingdom maybe jesus had overpromised and underdelivered don't you hate that feeling when something gets really really hyped up and you're excited about it and then you try it out and it's not that great anybody have that happen to them this year anyone see the new star wars movie about han solo yeah hello disney it's called dialogue you should look into it. Uh, or what about a toy when you were growing up that you just had to have, you know, for Christmas or for your birthday? And and, and finally, the the present comes and you unwrap it and you play with it for a couple hours and you're like, eh, man, it was okay. Or what about your first kiss? Do you remember your first kiss? I'm not talking about a peck on the cheek. I'm talking about the major leagues. You know, serious lip lockage. Do you remember your first time and what that was like? Um, you know, I watched movies back in the 80s, like Top Gun. I saw people making out in Top Gun and on TV on shows like The Love Boat, and I thought, that looks really fun. I'm going to try, try that someday, and I, I look forward to that moment. And I, and I would go in front of the mirror alone and practice because I heard somewhere people do that. And, and, uh, and then finally the day came. My first kiss was with Amy Bastel. And I decided that we were going to share our magic moment at Six Flags in a ride called the Time Tunnel. And the Time Tunnel is you get into this little boat and you go into this dark cavern through different epochs of time. And I decided I was going to make my move somewhere between the Ice Age and Pirates of the Caribbean. <laughs> and I didn't really get off my nerve until the Gettysburg Address. But, but I, w- I went for it. I went for it. And I thought it was going pretty well. And then I realized there's drool all over my chin and all over her. And no one had told me that you, you could like swallow your saliva, or you're supposed to keep it in there somehow. And so she was completely grossed out, and she told all of her friends, and for the rest of the school year, I was known as Ted the Tongue. (laughs) Sometimes you just get your hopes. you built up about that thing, and it doesn't come through. So many people... (laughs) yes, I just told that story, I'm sorry. Uh, I probably should have changed her name, too. many people in the first century were let down about this kingdom coming because it didn't show up in a tangible, physical way for them, or at least not immediately. And I wonder about you, and I wonder if you ever have some expectations spiritually about the kingdom in your life that haven't been met. Like, this idea of the kingdom got your hopes up about peace and spiritual growth and loving relationships and excitement and assurance about the future and strength to face today and, and healing. and But maybe your life or the reality of it hasn't been all of that. Maybe you've been waiting for the kingdom to come like the Israelites, but it hasn't manifested the way you had hoped. When you look at the slideshow pictures of your life, you know, that your image library spiritually speaking. And there are some beautiful, wonderful pictures in there of you being close to God, you know, going on a go team trip or having an experience in a small group or here at the service. But there are also some pictures in your library spiritually speaking of confusion about unanswered prayer, about worry that certain sin stays in your life and isn't going away maybe you wonder somewhere in the recesses of your heart, am I doing this right? Is the kingdom of heaven supposed to be like this? Or is it overhyped and under-delivering? So my problem and our problem and the problem of the nation of Israel in the back of the first century is we misunderstand what Jesus meant in his message. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was never God's intention to come to earth and say, abracadabra, the wolf is going to lie down with the lamb, and the Romans are going to be gone, and it was never his intention to come into your life when you become a Christian and flip some switch and suddenly everything's perfect. The kingdom of God happens more slowly, more mysteriously. We're in a series right now, we're starting a series today called The Offer of a Lifetime. Just over the next several weeks we're going to be looking at the life that God offers you in the kingdom and how to access it. And I know this is going to be challenging and fun for you the next several weeks, but today we want to focus in on just this idea of what does the kingdom of heaven actually mean? We'll go to Matthew chapter 6, verse 10. This is the Sermon on the Mount. This is the Lord's Prayer. You remember this one, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, the brainiacs in seminary tell us that the definition of the kingdom of heaven is the scope of God's effective will. <laughs> what does that mean? What it means is there in that scripture is where God's kingdom is, is where his will is done. That when, where God wants things to happen a certain way, they happen that way. Where things are done rightly. That's where the kingdom of God is, and when we turn our will over to him, He makes this place, earth, like it is in heaven. The confusion comes that most of us infer that the kingdom that Jesus is talking about is heaven, you know, far off someday, and we just got to kind of live with some disappointments here in this life, and someday we'll get to go and experience the kingdom fully. But that's based on a misunderstanding or a mistranslation of this word. You know, the original New Testament was written in Greek, and this word that's translated heaven is actually better probably translated heavens or air or atmosphere. The kingdom that is the atmosphere that is all around you. The idea that it's not far off or some place you have to go someday after you die, but the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is saying, it's right here. It's as near as the air that you breathe if you're just willing to let God's will come in. Let's go back for a moment to this idea that the kingdom overpromises and underdelivers, Because some of us thought we were signing up for this wonderful life in Christ, but it hasn't shaken out that way. Jesus says, you misunderstand my, the way my kingdom works, and so I'm going to tell you how it works. And he does it through parables, these little word pictures, these metaphors, because it's so mysterious that sometimes it takes uh, pointing to another object to help you understand it better. We all need metaphors. I love some of Jim Gaffigan's metaphors about parenting. When someone asked him, what's it like to have a fourth child? He said, imagine you're drowning and someone hands you a baby. (laughs) He also said, babies are the worst roommates. You know, they're unemployed. They don't pay rent. They keep insane hours. They have terrible hygiene. If you had a roommate that did any of these things that babies do, you'd ask them to move out. (laughs) I looked around on Twitter this week for people who were Um, You know, some dads who had metaphors for parenting. One guy tweeted, um, Watching my son eat rice with chopsticks three grains at a time, and I can't think of a better metaphor for parenting. That was good. One mom tweeted about parenting. She said, Doing homework with your kids really shows you what you're made of. Currently, I'm made of tears, rage, and wine. (laughs) Sometimes a little word picture helps you really understand what's going on. So Jesus is going to create some metaphors. We're going to look at these parables you know, throughout this series, these metaphors for what the kingdom, how the kingdom works. The first thing he wants you to know is the kingdom of heaven is slow. Matthew 13 The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and perch in its branches. And one source of disappointment that we have about God's power in our life is that it just happens so slow. We want it to happen faster, and especially if there is, is pain going on or loneliness going on, Lord, please take that away from me quickly. Or we want to microwave our spiritual growth. You know, there's certain hang-ups in our life. We we'd just like them to be gone, that baggage to be, uh, you know, off of our backs, and yet that's not the way it works. He says it's sort of like a mustard seed, the kingdom of heaven, that it starts out really slow and it grows underneath the surface and it takes time. But after a while it becomes this amazing force in nature. You think about organic spiritual growth. You think about your, your kids, for those of you who have kids. and Someone sees your kid who hasn't seen them in a year and they go, wow, you're Your child has grown a lot, but you're with them every day and you don't really notice them growing. And that's the way it is with spiritual growth. You know, day to day, it's about trusting God and trying to stay connected to Him. trying to invite His will into your life. And over time, it grows into this amazing thing. But it feels slow. A second message that comes through as a metaphor is the kingdom of heaven requires an unambiguous response on your part. This is Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for pearls, fine pearls. And then he finds one of great value. And he's so moved by it, he went away and sold all that he had and he bought it. It calls for an unambiguous response. The great danger that many of us in America, who are Christians, face is not that we'll renounce the faith, or that we'll commit some heinous sin and you know become a, a backsliding Christian. The, really, the, the biggest danger that we face is that we dabble. You know, we just kind of dabble with prayer. prayer, pray when we when we need it. Uh, that we dabble with scripture and you know, never really learn or study it. That we dabble with community. That we wouldn't get into a life group and really invest ourselves in other people's lives. That we dabble. And we understand why people dabble is because they want to keep their options open. They've got other things to do. They want to go so far into something that they lose their freedom. Jesus says you can't dabble when it comes to the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God calls for a decision about what you're going to allow God's will to do in your life. going to say to God, you know, I want Your kingdom. I want, I want that life in me, and so I'm willing to to stop dabbling and to dive all the way in. One of my favorite stories in the Gospels is in John chapter six. Jesus is on a roll in John chapter six. He has just walked on water. He's just fed five thousand people miraculously, and now he's got crowds of hundreds or thousands of people. Uh, I'm not sure what the venue is, but he's he's talking to this huge crowd who's munching on this, the loaves and the fishes and you know, having a really good time. And Jesus says, hey, if you really want the kingdom of God, if you really want me in your life, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. <laughs> <laughs> and, and people are like spitting out their fish and loaves. They're going, what? What are you talking about? That's, that's bizarre. And, and Jesus is saying, hey, this, this is serious. It calls for an unambiguous response. you got to be willing to follow me. And the scene there in John chapter 6 is strange because there's this huge crowd and suddenly they just they all start melting away. That guy's weird. He's asking for too much. And pretty soon the only people who are left out there on the lawn are Jesus and his 12 disciples. And he turns to them and he goes, what about you? Are you going to go? I love Peter's response. It's so classic Peter. He says, In verse 68, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you're the Holy One of God. Peter says what you and I already know that Christianity, that living in the kingdom, is difficult. But what's the alternative? Where else would we go? Sometimes it doesn't meet our expectations, but to whom else would we turn? Because a lot of us in this room have experienced the alternative. We've kind of played at Some of us here have played at spirituality for years and years and years, and we just kind of never really experienced the full life in God that other people talk about. Some of us um, went a different direction and weren't interested in God at all. We know what that alternative is like. Many of us in this room have figured out that it's not God that overpromises and underdelivers. It's not his kingdom that overpromises and underdelivers. It's this world. Because where there's a kingdom, there is a king. And many of us here know what it's like to make ourselves the king or the queen. Where else will we go, Peter says? So dads, your kids are watching you every day to see what it is that you believe about this kingdom. If it's what you truly want. I remember many years ago when my kids, Gray and Aiden and Malia, were very young. Uh, I was sitting at the dining room table doing some work. I think I was reading some Gateway things, actually. And my four-year-old son, Gray, was trying to get my attention. I don't remember what he was talking about. He was trying to get my attention. And finally he said, Hey, Dad. Jesus is going to take me to be with him before he takes you. And I, that startled me. I was like, well, what, are, what are you talking about, Gray? He said, well, I, re- I, I realized that I would be really sad if Jesus took you first. So I asked Jesus to take me first. And I, yeah, I thought, "Oh." Um, so I, I picked him up in my arms and talked to him about how you know, God has a plan for all of us, and when we do go, when He does take us, it's going to be amazing. But we probably have a lot of years together, Gray Boy, I told him. And he looked really relieved, and then he said, Well, maybe he'll take Aiden first. <laughs> and you know, I realized that in that moment and in many other moments since then, that parents, we're not gonna pass on perfect theology <laughs> to our kids, but how we live shows what we believe. And uh, that boy has had 17 years to watch me, and he's about to go to college next year. And hopefully he saw that this is what I want, this is all that I want. The kingdom of heaven is near, and I'm ready for God's will to be true in my life. I hope that's true for you, dads, uh, this Father Day, Father's Day, for you moms, and for everyone else. Let's pray together. Lord, we want to just pray that prayer that you taught us. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I pray that your kingdom would come to the hearts in this room. I pray that your kingdom would come to marriages. I pray that your kingdom would come to our work. I pray that your kingdom would come in what we do in the community here. And when we ask for your kingdom to come, Lord, we're asking that your will would be done, that you would have full sway over our lives, and that you... uh, uh, would make available to us the power from heaven thank you for dad's thank for, thank you for the chance to talk to you today as a father lord in jesus name amen